Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a prosthetic to treat blood pressure problems caused by spinal injuries. And the neurons that help us understand other people. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Shamni Bundell. The first thing that comes to mind when we think about spinal cord injuries is paralysis. But there are lots of other ways that people can be impacted. One that's particularly overlooked is blood pressure instability. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're lying down. You hear the doorbell ring and suddenly you jump up only to be met by a wave of lightheadedness. Maybe you even faint. This is caused by your body being a bit slow to react and not increasing your blood pressure fast enough to compensate for your movements. For most people, this is an occasional annoyance, but for those with spinal cord injuries, it can be constant and debilitating. That's because the system responsible for monitoring and maintaining blood pressure, the so-called baroreflex, can be damaged as a result of these injuries. Now a team led by Grégoire Cortine from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology have come up with a novel solution. A neuroprosthetic system which aims to monitor and maintain blood pressure for spinal cord injury patients. They're calling it a synthetic baroreflex. Noah Baker gave Gregoire a call and started by asking him a bit more about the natural baroreflex. The natural baroreflex measures the blood pressure. It's conveyed to specific uh, cells, neurons that are located in our brainstem. And then when these neurons detect that the blood pressure is too low, they will activate what is called a sympathetic circuit that are located through the spinal cord, in order to increase the vasoconstriction of blood vessels. That's what increases the blood pressure. And that's very much what you have been working on here, is trying to design a prosthetic device that could help create this baroreflex in those that have lost some of that function due to spinal cord injury. Tell me about the device you've been working on. We have an electrode array. So you imagine like a second skin that slides on top of the spinal cord. And the electrodes are very precisely located 
in order to target the neural circuits that normally regulate blood pressure. And then we have a captor in uh, the artery that measures the blood pressure constantly in real time and detects the need for the blood pressure modulation. So this goes through a computer, mini computer, very smart, located in the abdomen that will deliver electrical stimulation to the spinal cord. And what is very novel here that the stimulation of the spinal cord, they are so-called biomimetics in the sense that they reproduce the way the brainstem, our brain, would naturally activate the spinal cord in order to modulate blood pressure. You said that your prosthetic is very specifically targeted towards the neurons that work in the system, but trying to work out which neurons those needed to be is actually a whole process in itself. To some extent, that was a bit of a trial and error procedure to get to, the, to get to that point. Yes, it's very difficult, of course, to dissect the specific neurons you know, that are first involved in blood pressure instability, and then second, that we are stimulating with our neuroprosthetic system. People tend to see the spinal cord as one tube with reflexes and simple circuits. I mean, the spinal cord is a brain on itself, and a lot of functions are distributed throughout the spinal cord. But we know we are living an extraordinary time for neuroscience because we have such precise tools you know, to dissect the neurons, the connections. We have been able really to identify a very small region in the middle of the back that have a high concentration of this circuit. We call it the hemodynamic hotspot because when we target this specific region, you have an incredibly higher level of efficacy in the modulation of the blood pressure. Okay, so you worked with rat models, then you moved to non-human primates, and then you did test your system in a human patient. Tell me about that process, because that's the key moment for any clinical researcher the first time they get to test their system in a human patient. Yeah, it's true. It's a moment I have uh, already experienced when I was working with uh, the recovery of walking, paralyzed people making their first steps when we turn on the stimulation. And the same uh, happened with uh, the one patient. So this is uh, actually a surgeon in Calgary, and uh, we could not test all the features of the neuroprosthetic baroreflex, so we could only test the basic feature. But for him, it was sufficient to really dramatically change his quality of life. And since then, he completely stopped medication. You know, he's using the stimulator whenever it's necessary for him to modulate his blood pressure. And that's really changed this one aspect of his life as a person with a spinal cord injury. I mean, that's exactly, I suppose, what you as a scientist and, and a clinical scientist want to hear with your work. I'm always conscious in these kinds of situations that it's very rare to find a win that doesn't have other things to think about. You know, there's almost always some form of side effect. Are there side effects you're concerned about? Chronically stimulating these neurons, could they perhaps have impacts on other parts of the body? There is a concern that by stimulating constantly, maybe also potentially overstimulating, that you can damage other organs, but also maybe more importantly, you may elicit what is called autonomic dysreflexia, which is a very unknown phenomenon, but people with spinal cord injury are very much aware of it, meaning a stimulus, typically a bladder infection or like a constipation, for example, will activate the blood pressure system and elevate suddenly the blood pressure. This could lead to a stroke, and people die because of autonomic dysreflexia. So, of course, there is a concern by, by using our stimulation, we can facilitate autonomic dysreflexia. And this is certainly an aspect we will investigate in the future. And so what's next for your neuroprosthesis? Is it a case of testing in more people? Or is there more you can do to develop and refine the system that you currently have? 
So for us, the next steps, I would say, are twofold. There will be a large pivotal clinical trials in the United States in order to really establish a prosthetic system that can be used you know, for all the people. And then the second path that is really exciting also, we propose a program to really act very early after the injury. So the same technology, but implanted right away to really maximize uh, the management of blood pressure in the first days, weeks, months after the injury and really improve the functional recovery. So this is a very exciting time for this type of research because we can really foresee one treatment within the next two years for people who are suffering from chronic hypotension and maybe within the next five years, an intervention to help in the very early stage and improve recovery. That was Gregoire Cortine talking to Noah Baker. You can read more about the synthetic baroreflex in his paper. We'll pop a link in the show notes. This is the point in the podcast where we usually have our weekly coronavirus news update, Coronapod. But as I'm sure many of you are aware, there's a lot going on in the world with regards to COVID-19 right now. So to cover all this news, Coronapod will become a separate show once again for the time being. It'll be coming out later in the week, so make sure you keep an eye on your podcast feed. Coming up in this show... How do you understand what other people believe? It's a pretty complex skill, but scientists have mapped the neurons behind it. Right now, though, it's time for the Research Highlights with Benjamin Thompson. This being a podcast, you can't see me while I'm speaking to you. But if you could, you'd see that I'm actually using rather a lot of hand gestures to emphasise words as I'm saying them. Perhaps this makes me look a little bit silly alone in my room, but it turns out that gestures like these could be playing a subtle but important role in how words are perceived. Researchers in the Netherlands asked volunteers to watch videos of a speaker who used a common type of up-and-down hand movement while talking, known as a beat gesture. These participants were then asked to report on the syllables the speaker stressed or the duration of the vowel sounds that they spoke. When people heard a syllable that coincided with a beat gesture, they perceived it to have more emphasis, and also the vowel sounds within it seemed shorter to them. Both effects were subtle, but have the potential to drastically alter the meaning of an entire sentence. Consider the shift in emphasis from object to object, for example. The study bolsters theories suggesting that language comprehension is about more than just what you hear. You can't see me, but I'm gesturing over to the proceedings of the Royal Society B, where you can read more. Saturn is a planet that's not on the level. But what made this planet such a pushover is a subject of some debate. Saturn is tilted with respect to its orbit around the Sun. Planetary scientists had thought the planet acquired its tilt more than 4 billion years ago, thanks to the gravitational influence of Neptune. But now, a new theory suggests that the tilt happened much more recently and that Saturn's biggest moon, Titan, is to blame. Recent measurements show that Titan is moving relatively rapidly away from Saturn. Using this information, researchers were able to determine that one billion years ago, as Titan moved away, it reached a position where its gravitational influence made Saturn unstable, making the planet wobble on its axis until it ended in the jaunty tilt we see today. The team suggests that the tilts of giant planets like Saturn could evolve over time 
as their moons migrate. Head over to Nature Astronomy to read more. Whilst it may not always seem like it in today's modern world, humans are really good at understanding that other humans have feelings, thoughts and beliefs that may differ from our own. We're even good at grasping what they may be. So a very common example would be something like uh, you're sitting with a friend and you will see them reaching for a glass of water and based on that you may infer that they're thirsty. This is Zeev Williams, a neuroscientist from Harvard Medical School in the US. He's interested in understanding the neurological processes behind this ability, known in psychology as theory of mind, an important skill for all sorts of cooperative behaviours that humans are famous for. And this week in Nature, Zeev has published a paper that has finally detailed the individual neurons involved in this process. I called him up to find out how he did it, and started by asking what we already knew about how this complicated process works in human brains. So there have been functional imaging studies that have shown uh, certain parts of the brain that light up when people try to think about other people's beliefs. But until now, it hasn't really been clear whether or how our neurons able to represent another's beliefs which are inherently unobservable and unknown. And so we have like a general understanding of maybe parts of the brain that might be involved in this process, but your paper, you're really trying to identify the individual neurons that are involved. Correct, yeah. And and neurons are, are interesting because these are, you know, really the simplest units in the human brain that are able to encode any kind of information. And it's all a bit like computer transistors, you know, zeros and ones. And by being able to record from these individual neurons, you can start very, uh, asking very interesting questions about what are the basic computations uh, that allows the brain to, to form these kinds of representations and predict what somebody else is thinking. And so how do you go about trying to find this out? How do you identify what neurons are involved and how do you test it in people? So what we do is we record from neurons in participants that are undergoing uh, neurosurgical procedures. And as part of standard medical care, we are implanting microelectrodes to record neural activity in their brains. These very, very fine microwires that we put right next to the brain cells and they're able to record the activities of those individual neurons. So what we do is record neural activity from parts of the brains that are thought to be involved in theory of mind. And as we're performing recordings from these individual neurons, we are having the participants perform this social behavioral task. So for example, we use this false belief task that basically poses narratives to individuals. So the participant may hear a narrative such as you and Tom are sitting at a table and when they leave you move a cup from the table to the cupboard. And we can actually track the activity of individual neurons as they are forming inferences about these situations. And so when we ask a question like, where does Tom believe the cup to be? You can actually ask, how is this neuron changing in its activity based on changes in the other's beliefs? So after mapping what these neurons are doing, which ones are firing, what did you find? Like what parts of the brain or what neuronal processes were involved in theory of mind? We found that there certain subgroups of neurons kind of right in the front and middle part of the brain that would only activate when thinking about somebody else's beliefs, but they displayed fairly little change in activity when thinking about anything else. 
The other really interesting thing was that they did this really reliably. So we presented the participants with richly varied narratives. In some cases, they were thinking about the location of a car or a bicycle. In other situations, they were thinking about a present that was being given to a friend. Uh, and in other cases, they may be thinking about the location of a drink on a table, for example. But throughout all these situations, these neurons very reliably tracked what the other believed about these things. But we also found other neurons that very reliably predicted what it is that the other specifically was thinking about. So we had these multiple subgroups of different neurons, each doing slightly different things. So when you glue these all together, they painted a very rich picture of what it is that the other individual believed. Were you surprised at this? Because to me, as a layperson, it seemed almost inconceivable that such like a what sounds like a very complicated neural process can be boiled down to just, well, it's several hundred neurons, but still like a few neurons in the brain. Were you surprised at this at all? Yes and no. So one of the interesting thing about neurons is what we're doing is we're basically reading out information from these individual nodes. But each neuron is part of a, a vast network of other cells that all are doing presumably slightly different computations. It's not like these individual neurons are likely coming up uh, with these very complex predictions on their own. They're likely integrating information from other parts of the brain. And if we had access to every cell in the brain, we could probably paint a much richer and more, more complex picture of, of what other people are thinking and what I'm thinking as well. But this is a good starting point. It lets you start peering into the brain and looking at what neurons are doing and how they're representing information about these extremely complex, higher-level type social representations. I was wondering as well, what might be, you know, the implications of this? What does this add to the sort of understanding or theory of mind and to sort of neuroscience more generally? So theory of mind is, is really central to a lot of aspects of social behavior. So it's central to our ability to interact effectively, to cooperate. And so it's important to be able to understand what are the basic computations that underlie this ability for us to be able to understand how people are able to do these things. It is also important for our understanding of how our individuals are able to feel empathy for others or to feel what somebody else is feeling, even though that may not be explicitly stated. But more importantly, a theory of mind is also often affected by disorders like autism. And uh, in autism especially, this is one of the aspects of this disorder that is most disabling, the inability to socially interact effectively with other individuals. And so by starting to get us uh, an understanding of what are the basic units and elements in the brain that are responsible for these basic social computations, it can allow us to begin building a blueprint for not only how the brain performs these computations, but also what aspects of it may be disrupted by disorders such as autism. That was Eve Williams from Harvard Medical School in the US. To understand what he thinks about theory of mind, check out his paper in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Nick, what's hot in the world of science? Well, what I've been looking at this week is a story in science, and it's about cat's obsession with catnip. The fact that cats like catnip is basically the only thing I know about catnip. Because <laughs> I've only ever heard people use it as a, as a metaphor for something you really like. You're like, oh yeah, it's like, it's like catnip to me. And I'm like, okay, I know that that means you like it. I, I don't know why. 
So you've clearly never had a cat. So this is a common thing. It comes from a plant, actually, that's put in cat toys and stuff. And basically, they just go wild for it. They'll grab whatever it's in, rub it all over themselves, and just basically squirm all around the floor. And just, yeah, they go absolutely wild for it. And it's often described as things like kitty crack and that sort of thing. And, um, well, this story is trying to work out, like, why that is. And it seems like calling it kitty crack is probably not too far because it similarly affects cats' opioid systems like morphine and heroin do in people. It's it's actually cat drugs. It's just like, (laughs) and they're going to get addicted to it and it just makes them feel good. That's terrifying. It does sound terrifying when you put it like that, but this study wasn't really looking at how addictive it is or that sort of thing. It was looking at what the sort of mechanism is behind it. They seem to have boiled it down to a couple of compounds. Nepetalactone and nepetalactol seem to be the key ingredients. And so what they did to find that out was they basically put little dishes, one that had been rubbed in this compound and one that hadn't, in cages with cats, including like big cats like jaguars and stuff, and also dogs and other animals, to see how they reacted. And just the cats, including the big cats, all reacted with the discs that had been treated with this compound and would like rub it all over themselves. But dogs and stuff, they weren't bothered. So all of the cats are just really into the the magical catnip compound. Is it bad for them? Well, it might actually be good for them because whenever you see something like this, you like wonder, is there like an evolutionary reason behind it? And it seems like there might be because in this study as well, they were wondering the same thing and they found out that it may actually repel mosquitoes. And so the action that cats do, they rub it all over themselves, may be protective to actually ward off mosquitoes because this... A uh, compound in the petalactone has been used in pesticides. And so they thought, well, maybe it'll work with cats as well. So what they did is they sedated some cats, would rub the compound on them, and the mosquitoes would land on them 50% less. And I imagine particularly for for cats, if you're sort of stalking your prey across the savannah, you don't want to be like itching some of the mosquitoes landing on you. Yeah, exactly. They suggest that might be a reason why this trait has evolved because yeah you don't want to be jumpy when you're trying to stalk something but it's not clear what came first the sort of high that cats get from it or the rubbing it all over themselves to protect from mosquitoes it could be one led to the other in the way that evolution so often does and now it provides entertainment when we can um give it to cats in toys and (laughs) And watch how enthusiastic they are about it. Yeah, although the description of, like, cat heroin may make me rethink that slightly. Slightly (laughs) off-putting. Slightly off-putting. Well, what have you found this week, Charmaine? So the story that caught my eye this week was from sci-fi.com, and it caught my eye because it's about a gorgeous image of a planetary nebula, which obviously ideal for podcasts, just talking about really pretty pictures. Um, But you can go, uh, there's there's a link to it in the show notes, you can go and um, have a look for yourself. And it's sort of these huge, gorgeous swirls in space. And I realised I didn't really know what a planetary nebula was. So I've, I've gone away and, and done some research and also read up on why this one is particularly mysterious. Yeah, I must say, like I know nebulas as in where stars form, just these great big dust clouds you see. But I'm not really sure 
what a planetary nebula is. So yeah, please fill us in. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one kind of nebula. It's also slightly confusing because anything slightly fuzzy in the sky used to be called a nebula. So like spiral galaxies used to be called spiral nebula, the Andromeda nebula, and then everyone's like, oh no, those are galaxies. <laughs> Classic science. <laughs> yeah. So nebula tend to be clouds of dust or, or ionized gas sort of glowing faintly. And planetary nebula, just to make this more confusing, are nothing to do with planets. Um, it's just that when the astronomers used to look, first looked at them, they were like, oh, it's round. It's like a planet. It's, it's, it's not, in fact, like a planet at all. It is this sort of big cloud of ionized gas. And in the case of planetary nebula, it's gas that's sort of ejected from the outer layers of giants. So like what our star will become as it sort of grows, grows bigger and bigger. And then these stars also emit radiation, which causes this gas to glow, which is how you can see them, at least with telescopes. But they are very, very faint. So this story is about a new planetary nebula that has been spotted. And it's so faint that they only were able to see it in an image which had an exposure time of 59 hours. Wow. So this nebula was particularly faint. Like, Why were scientists interested in it because it was unusual in that way well no so so at this point all people have done is basically spot it so some amateur astronomers have been combing through all this data basically looking for planetary nebulae because they are so hard to see and this is a new one they found i I think it's particularly cool because it's actually about the size of the full moon on the sky so kind of huge but of course completely invisible to the naked eye And the reason other astronomers are are interested in it is that it's a really peculiar shape. Right. And you said they have these sort of round shapes normally. So what sort of shape is this particular planetary nebula have? Yeah. Well, the first ones that were discovered tended to be this, these sort of nice bubble shapes. Like you can imagine if, if a star is sort of like growing and ejecting gas, it's just this growing bubble of gas that you can see. Um, and then they started finding ones of different shapes. So some of them might be a different shape because it was a binary star system. So there was some sort of spinning happening or because when the star, when the red giant sort of was expanding, there was a big planet that got sort of absorbed into the star and like changed its, its sort of speed or rotational momentum, things like that. Or it could be some of them have shapes to do with magnetic fields perhaps of the star perhaps even of the galaxy that they're in but this one is 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 quite weird so it's got these very long thin filaments which are quite unusual it might be because of magnetic fields but it seems like it's too big potentially it's like surprisingly large so you it's quite tricky to calculate how big it actually is so there are a couple of stars which could be the sort of central white white dwarf star around which planetary nebula form and they're not quite sure which of two possible stars it is but either one it's really quite far away and really quite big and there's some some questions there about how it could have got so big it's in an unusual place in the sky so it's not along the main plane of the milky way where you know most of the stars in our galaxy are and the fact that it's kind of like off to one side maybe means it has more room to expand basically there's loads of questions and all we've really got so far is this is this sort of 60 hour exposure which sort of says look it's there look we found a thing (laughs) so do astronomers and scientists have any idea how they might try and unpick some of these questions well there are lots of things you can do but it takes a lot of time and equipment to dig into this 
So measuring the wavelengths of the light it emits would be a good one. That would take even longer exposure times, plus a huge telescope. So it might be a matter of when when someone gets round to it or whether it piques anyone's interest. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I look forward to hearing more about this bizarre sounding planetary nebula in the future. But listeners, I think that's all we've got time for. But if you're interested in the stories we've discussed and you'd like more like them, then make sure you sign up to the Nature Briefing. We'll put a link to that along with the stories we discussed in the show notes. That's all for this week. But before we go, we do have a new film out. This one is all about the ears of prehistoric mammals and a particular kind of mammal whose ears may shed some light on when mammals originated as a group. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Also, don't forget to keep an eye out for Coronapod later this week. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Shamini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus. The key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.